The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Take your Bibles, please. And we'll go to the book of Ephesians again, Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read from verses 7 to 10. Actually, just for context, we'll read verse 1 to 10 to get the whole thing in its context. And Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Ah, let's keep reading. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to our mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's again ask for God's help, shall we? Loving Father, we come before you again with the Word of God open before us. And we plead with you, O God, that you would meet with us now and speak to us. Speak into the heart of every person in this room. Meet the needs that are there, we pray, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. The questions you often hear as you go out and do evangelism is, what has Jesus Christ ever done for me? What has Christ done for you and I? How does Christ identify with us? How does Christ really know what I'm going through? The reality is sometimes what we're going through seems so overwhelming and so overbearing that we wonder, how can God on high really understand my situation? How does he know the pain and the struggle and the heartache that all of us face? How can we ourselves know the freedom from the fear of death? It's one of the big things that we all face. Every single man, I don't care how rich you are or how poor you are or what station you have in life, we all face death. How can we know the freedom from sin's heavy chains? All of us know what it is in the depth of our souls to break God's law and break God's commandment and feel that weight, that pain on the inside. How can we be free from it? We were commenting yesterday morning after the evangelism time, as you walk through the streets of Noble Park shopping area, you see the depression and the downcastness and the the sorrows on the faces of the people you meet. It's a result of sin. The question is, how can we be free from it? How can we know for sure that we too may stand in heaven's glorious realms? How do we know? How can we be sure? 
Well, the Bible tells us without a shadow of a doubt that Christ has identified himself with us. Christ has suffered the limitations of our humanity. He has conquered those things we fear most of all. Christ has gone ahead of us to prepare for us a homecoming. Now, I want you to notice from the text, the way Paul writes here, he doesn't write in a chronological order. He writes more in a thematic order. He gives the themes he's going for. Having focused on the church as a whole in verses 1 through 6 or 7 there, now he begins to focus on the individual and the grace has been given to each of us. But there is a very chronological aspect to what is happening here. I want to give it for you. In verses 9 and 10, he says that Christ descended. And then in verses 8 and verse 10, he says that Christ ascended again. So that would be chronologically. First he descended and then he ascended. In verse 8, the Bible says that he led captivity captive In verse 7, it says he gave gifts to men. And then in verse 10, it says he is filling all in all. And then in verse 11, it says he gave the ministry grip gifts for the equipping and the building up of the church. Now, notice that little phrase. He says that captivity he led captive. What does that mean? What it means is it's referring to the enemies that Christ has conquered. And I'm going to explain a bit more of that in just a second. So in that list of things, in a chronological order, you could insert in between Christ ascended and Christ ascended, you could say Christ has conquered. He's defeated his enemies, and when he ascended on high, he led those things captive. Okay? So what we're saying is this. He ascended, sorry, he descended, he conquered, he ascended, he led those captivities, led led captive, sorry, those captivities that we once faced, and then he gave out gifts to men. Now you say, what is Paul talking about? What kind of analogy is Paul drawing here? And the reality is there is something back in the times of Paul, a Roman victory parade. A Roman general would go off with the legions into far-off places and he would conquer some land. Perhaps he conquered Spain or he conquered Germany or whatever it was. And he would come back. And in the early pre-dawn hours outside the city in a special place, a special field, he would gather all the legions together. He would gather the captives and they would bring out a special chariot for the general. It was a beautiful chariot, all covered in gold and so on. And in the front of it, there'd be four horses that would draw that chariot. And the general would put on a purple robe lined with gold trimmings. And they would put a special laurel wreath made out of gold on his head. And then they would do something really strange. They would paint his face red. And they would paint his boots bright red. It was a memorial, a tribute to one of the Roman gods. And what he would do is, as dawn was breaking over the, the city, and all the women would come out of the streets, and they would gather on the side of the streets, and they have great armloads of fresh flowers. And the Roman general would ride his horse at the head of this long procession into the city. And as he would ride forward, behind his chariot would be the captives. Those enemy kings and enemy generals and great warriors that he had captured. And coming behind that would be wagons piled high with all the loot, all the spoils of war. And as he would ride into the city, the women would take those flowers. They begin to throw them on the streets in front of the general and his horses and then in front of the soldiers. And as they walked, their feet would crush those flowers and the scent The incredible smell of those fresh flowers being crushed would rise up and it would just hang over the whole city. So as the army marched by, there was this incredible smell, the sweet smell of victory and success all the way through the city. And the people would cheer and shout and cry out in joy because this general had conquered their enemies. At the end of that march, he would come to a spot and there was some temples there and he would offer up certain offerings. And then he would turn around and take from all that pile of spoils and booty on all those chariots and he'd begin to give to his soldiers and give the people great gifts. And you can immediately see the parallel, can't you? Jesus Christ, our conquering King, has ascended on high. 
He has been welcomed back into the courts of heaven. And that general, the Roman general, got to act like a Roman deity and a Roman king for one day. Everybody looked up to him. He was like Caesar-elect. But you know what the great thing about the Lord Jesus Christ is? He is not king and God for a day. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the ascending, conquering king for all of eternity. And that's the picture that Paul is sort of sketching out as he writes here. He descended in his humiliation. He conquered his and our greatest enemies that we will ever face. Thirdly, he ascended in triumph. And fourthly, he has poured out gifts on all of his people. That's what Paul's drawing out here. We share in Christ's victory. We share in it because in the sense of the freedom from our enemies, we share in it because we now live and worship and work in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is that great gift that he has poured out. And I want us to see this morning the first three of those four things. I want You can get your little note sheet there. You can follow along if you want. I want us to see... Jesus' descent in humiliation. I want us to see his conquering in suffering and through suffering. And I want us to see this morning and rejoice that he ascended in victory. So first of all, his humiliation. One of the things we must remember and realize is that the Son of God existed as God, eternally begotten in eternity past. Uh, In a very literal sense, in verse 10, he that descended is the same as he who ascended. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, truly God, descended and took on human flesh and blood at his incarnation. At his descent and birth, he did not become anything other than what he already was. He is truly God, and now he's truly God and truly man. Two natures in one person, inextricably tied together. Jesus Christ, who ascended, is also the same person with two natures. So Christ in heavenly glory still has a body of a man, a glorified, resurrected, risen body. He is still truly man and truly God together. And that's so important. And we'll see why at the end. So hang on to that. In his humiliation, Christ knows what it means to be truly man. He, Christ, has experienced humanity and can identify with all that we wrestle and struggle with as human beings. When Paul said he descended to lower parts or lower regions of the earth, it doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means where he went into hell. It's it's simply a term that means he descended to the surface of the earth, the lower parts. So it just means he literally humiliated and descended to earth and he existed and walked on the surface of the earth and he ascended high from there again. That's the most natural reading. I read a whole bunch of articles and stuff about that interpretation. That maybe he went into hell and all of that. And they said, no, it's, it's a stretch to say that. The most natural, simple reading of the text is that he descended and he walked and lived on this earth as we all do. So Christ knows what it means to to be in humiliation. We know from the Bible in Philippians 2 how he took off his glory for a time and he came on this earth and walked as a man. He humbled himself. I want us to look at a whole series of things, just really quickly, just glaze over them, to get a flavor of Christ's humiliation. It's important for us. In uh, First of all, Christ took our nature as his own. The Bible says in Philippians 2, Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Christ experienced divine conception, but also a natural human birth. The Bible says... In Luke chapter 2, that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end, in the inn. Christ knew what it was to submit himself to his parents. And unlike kids today, sorry kids, unlike kids today, Jesus really did know better than his parents. Kids today seem to think they all know better than their parents and they're always got that sort of grumpy look on their face, but Jesus did. 
He really did know better than his parents, and yet he submitted himself to his parents. The Bible says in Luke 2.51 that Jesus went and continued in subjection to his parents. He can identify with the youth. Christ knew by experience a humble station in life. He was a carpenter's son. In a small, remote, rural village, he lived in virtual obscurity. I figured out 30 years out of 33 years, that's 90% of his life. He lived in a back village. Nobody knew who he was or what was going on. He lived 90% of his life in obscurity from all of the social scene in Jerusalem and Judea. Christ can identify with the marginalized, the forgotten, and the passed over. Christ lived in poverty. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes and our sakes, he became poor. Christ knew what it was to be poor. He had one robe and one cloak when he died. He had no place to lay his head. Jesus wrote no books. He never traveled more than 50 miles in his entire lifetime. He knew what it was to live in abject poverty. He can relate with all of us who have struggled and suffered in our life. Christ shared in a weakness of humanity. The Bible says in Hebrews 4 verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one... Who know, sorry, who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He can relate to our weaknesses. Christ knows hunger. He knew pain. He knew sickness. He knew weakness and fatigue. He knew the pain of betrayal and he knew what it was to be lonely. You suffer pain. You're lonely. You know what it is to be forgotten and abandoned by people. You know what it is to be sick and deal with ongoing chronic illness. Christ knew all those things. Maybe not chronic illness like we would think of it today, but he certainly understood all those things. He knew hunger and sickness and so on. Christ became a servant. The Bible says he did not come to be served, but to serve. In Luke 22, verse 27, For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Christ associated with the despised and the downtrodden. He knew also what it was like to associate with sinners and people that society wanted nothing to do with. In Matthew 9, Jesus was at the table And many tax collectors and sinners came in and they were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now listen, I know Christians that will take verses like this and say it's totally okay for me to hang out with all the rough, sinful people in the world. And they communicate and fellowship with them as if they were one of them. That is not what Jesus did. Jesus did not associate with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and other people like that to be like them. He associated with them that he might reach out to them with love and grace and the gospel message. He associated with them to set them free from sin. Christ knew what it was to humble himself to be a servant. One of my favorite scenes in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is John 13, and he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was wearing. Christ knew what it was to submit in obedience to something far costlier than we can ever know. He submitted to death, to separation and abandonment. Nobody, I don't know, I don't know what all your situations are. But none of us can say we went through what Christ went through on the cross. Abandoned, forsaken, rejected, denied, betrayed by everybody who meant anything to him in this world. And his heavenly father turned his back on him for a time. No matter what you're going through. No matter what struggles you have in your life, no matter what pain you deal with, no matter what suffering you go through, you have not been through anything like Jesus went through. And he understands, he knows what you're going through. 
He knew what it was to endure mockery and sneering and shame. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we did not esteem Him. He knew what it was to endure unbearable sufferings. In Isaiah 50 and 53, the Bible says this, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth in response. Jesus knew what it was to endure death. The Bible says in Philippians 2, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen. There is nothing that you have experienced, that I have experienced, that Christ does not know what it's like. We cannot cry out to the Father and say, I'm going through this and this and this. And know in heaven he's saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. He understands it all. We have had the experience of sinning in willful disobedience to God. You could say, Jesus never did that. And you're absolutely right. Jesus never did sin in willful disobedience to God. But Jesus endured something far worse. He endured all the curses of the law against him because he was made sin for us. He took our sin on himself. He knows what it is to stand under the full weight of the law's curses. Jesus Christ descended in humiliation. He humbled himself for your sake and for mine. He has done more for you than any other man, person, or group ever possibly could do for you. He knows your pain. He knows your suffering. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your struggles and your difficulties. And Jesus cares. He loves you with a love that's far beyond anything you will ever experience on the surface of this planet. But Christ has done far more than merely come and experience humanity and just say, I know what it's like to go through it with you. I can put my arm around you and I can walk with you. He did so much more than that. The Bible also makes it clear that he conquered all those things through his suffering. There are three enemies that we require deliverance from. We desperately need to be set free from the dominion of Satan. We desperately need to be set free from the power of sin and from the power of death. Those three. Firstly, Christ came and through his sufferings, he set us free from Satan. Now, some of you might be thinking, I didn't know I was in slavery to Satan. What the Bible says In 1 John 5, verse 19, the Bible says this, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There are only two groups in Scripture. There's no idea of a secular, a sacred, and an evil. There's not three. There's only two. And John draws a line straight down the middle and he said, Look, We know that those who are children of God are of God, but we also know that anybody outside that group lies in the power of the evil one, the power of Satan. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 7 and 8, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, that's God, is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. But listen to this. Listen to the way the verse finishes. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He rescued us from the domain of darkness, that's the domain of Satan, and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The Bible tells us that one of the promises that God made to our first father and our first mother right after they committed that very first sin is one day a son, a seed of the woman would come. And the Bible says that although the serpent would bruise his heel, that the son would crush his head. Anybody here see the movie The Passion? I know it's a bit, it was a bit controversial. Some of you have seen it. My favorite scene in the whole movie. You know what it is? It's not the ending, although that is fantastic as well. My favorite scene in the movie is Jesus rises up, having poured out his heart towards God, and he turns to walk out of the, the garden. As he walks by, there's a serpent slithering, and he walks and just goes, and he crushes it under his foot as he walks out. And I go, yes! <laughs> Jesus is going to win. He crushed Satan under his foot. That victory was won in the garden, if you really want to know. Yes, he suffered on the cross. Yes, he shed his blood that we might be washed clean. But he triumphed at last moment in the garden. He crushed the head of the serpent. I know it's only a figurative thing. It didn't actually happen. But it's a beautiful picture of what was going on on a spiritual level. Jesus Christ died on a cross suffering intense emotional and physical pain to set us free from slavery to Satan. And how did he do it? He suffered the penalty promised to Adam and Eve for disobeying the command about eating the fruit. He defeated and crushed Satan by his obedience to his father, obedience even to the point of death. What an amazing Savior we have who set us free from sin. He set us free from the power of Satan. Secondly, Christ conquered the power of sin. Adam and Eve, the Bible says, they were created upright. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29, Behold, I have found only this, that God made man upright, but they have sought out main devices. The word upright there, that's a beautiful word. You know what it describes elsewhere? God's character. God made them with the same holy character that he had. But man in his own willful disobedience went after all of his own devices. And by one single act of disobedience, mankind was plunged into slavery to sin. The devil told a great lie in the garden. He said that we would be like God. He said, you'll be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And the lie was that although you will know the difference, you will be unable to choose for the good. You will only choose for the evil. You will only choose for self. You will never choose for God. You will only choose to please yourself. You only choose to make yourself look good and lift yourself up before all of mankind. You will always choose evil. That was the lie. Disobedience to God made them disobeyers. And disobeyers brought on themselves a propensity to sin. It's called a sin nature. And all of us inherited from our first father and mother a sin nature. I used to take pictures of my kids around when I was, years ago when I was traveling, preaching. I go to a place and I say, oh, you got a picture of your family? Oh, yeah, I'd show them. And they look at the picture of my sons. And they'd all say, well, no, no surprises guessing who their dad is, right? Because they look like me. Poor guys, you know. And they'd say, oh, he looks just like his dad. In fact, when Jonathan was going to Bible school, there was a, uh, one semester when I was finishing up and one semester when he was there at Bible school. And we were standing with our backs to this other teacher. And she walked up and she kind of... And she actually taps me on the shoulder. Oh, I thought you were Jono. And I said, no, he's Jono, right? And then, then, oh, and she just couldn't believe how much we were alike. You see, Jono inherited certain physical aspects and traits from me. And just like he inherited those things from me, so we all inherited from our forefathers that sin nature, that propensity to commit sin. The Bible says... 
Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, Jesus answered them and said in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. He said, it's Adam and Eve's fault. They started it all. If it hadn't been for them and that stupid apple, we wouldn't be in this mess. I might have told you the story. I often repeat stories, but forgive me if I already have. As an uh, African-American slave, sadly, in the 1800s. And he was out in the garden one day, and he was, he was working in the garden, and his master happened to ride by. And, and Samuel was out there, and he's working away. And as he's working away, the master could hear him saying, that darn old Eve and the stupid apple. And if he hadn't done this, I wouldn't be doing it. And, she, and the master stopped and she said, Samuel, what's the problem? He said, Master, I went to church yesterday. Yeah, good. He said, I heard all about Adam and Eve. Yeah, that's great. He said, you know what? If it hadn't been for Eve and that stupid apple, I wouldn't be here in the garden in the heat. You're a slave. I could be sitting over there in the shade of a tree drinking a cool glass of lemonade. And the master said, you know what? Stop everything. He said, put your, your, your pole down. Go over there and sit down on the tree, under the tree. He said, I will bring you a glass of cold lemonade. Said, you can't believe it. So he goes over there and he's sitting down, waiting for what's about to happen. And the master comes out. He says, here it is. Here's the glass of lemonade. Go ahead and drink. And Samuel's sort of, you know, drinking. He said, you know what, Samuel? This is not good enough. He said, you go into my house, go into my bedroom, and you put on any of my clothes. You can sit in my desk. You can read my books. You can ride in my carriage. You can wear my clothes. You don't have to lift a finger for the rest of your life, Samuel. And Samuel, this is, this is too good to be true. But he goes on, does it, right? He's, he's enjoying it. The master goes, oh, one thing, just, just one thing. He said, okay. He said, there's a box on my desk. You may not open it and look and see what's inside. And Samuel thinks, this is great. No, who cares about a stupid box, right? Right. So for the first day, he's enjoying everything. And he thinks about the box about once every couple hours. The second day, he thinks about the box every hour. On the third day, all he can think about is the box. He's forgotten the lemonade. He's forgotten the clothes. He's forgotten riding the chariot. All he does is sit in the desk and stare at the box. And finally, Samuel can take it no longer. He waits till the master goes out for some business, and the house is all empty. He looks around, okay. and he opens the box, and he looks inside. There's a little piece of paper written in there. It says, get back to work, you wicked slave. Because <laughs> he knew. The master knew. And here's the reality of it all. We can look back and say, oh, it's Adam and Eve's fault. They did the first sin. It's all their fault. Except the one thing is absolutely true. All of us commit sin. And we are therefore all slaves of sin. Just as surely as Samuel could not keep one command. Neither could our parents. Neither can we. And we are in slavery to sin. But Christ's death on the cross set us free. He died suffering the full weight of God's wrath against us for our sin. When we trust in Christ, we identify ourselves with Christ. His life of perfect obedience becomes my life of perfect obedience. His death to sin under the weight of God's wrath becomes my death. Under the weight of God's wrath, I'm identifying myself with him. And so his death is mine and his suffering is mine. His perfect obedience is mine. His burial is mine and so is his resurrection. It's all mine. All of those things because he did it for me and he set me free from sin. I'm no longer under the power of sin. I still have the presence of sin in my life. It still drives me to do things I know I'm not supposed to do, but I'm no longer under the power of it. And one day, by God's amazing grace, He will deliver me not only from the power of it, but also from the presence of it. And the work in me will be finished. We'll talk about more that more. The Bible says this, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Galatians 2 verse 20 says this, 
I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He set me free from sin. And right alongside of being set free from sin, they're almost tied together. He set me free from death. Thirdly, Christ conquered the power of death. Standing together with Christ, the feet of the power of sin is the power of death. The the power of sin has been broken and Christ has set us free. He's also set us free from death. Listen to what the Bible says. I love Romans 8. Uh, The old Puritans used to call it the great eight. It was Paul's sort of triumphant statement about the power of God to set us free. Listen to this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he says this. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And I stumbled over that for years. What law of sin and death? What's he talking about? A, A literal law like an Old Testament law? No. What it means is this. It's the overwhelming, powerful force. So let's read it again. I'll put those words in place. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the overwhelming, powerful force of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the overwhelming, powerful force of sin and death. Free. Set us free. You say, wait a minute, hold on a second, just back up there, preacher boy. I went to a funeral two weeks ago. There was a body in a casket. It went into the ground. That guy died. You're right, there is. But listen, the power of death has been broken like this. For somebody who dies without Christ and goes into a grave, that death is a doorway into eternal separation from God. Once you pass through that death doorway into the life beyond, it's a living death in hell forever, period, no hope. I remember sitting um, in a funeral years ago. A young man who's a friend of ours, he was riding his motorcycle home late one night, minding his own business, not doing anything wrong. He wasn't speeding. He wasn't being reckless. He was just riding along. Taxi cab came out of a side street, hit him, and he went flying down the road. And he died on the sidewalk, 60 feet down the road from where he hit the, the bike. We went to that funeral, and the guy stood up there, and he made me mad. He ran off all these nice platitudes about, oh, in a better place, and oh, and he just, I thought to myself, you have absolutely no idea. And you look at that casket, and there's absolute hopelessness written right across the whole lid. He is not coming out of that box. There is no hope whatsoever for him. And then I went to another funeral a few years later, and Grandpa Biggs, who had a gospel preacher for some 50, 60 years, I think, he's lying in a casket, and I knew hope was written all over it. Because Steve Biggs had stepped through the death's doorway and he had stepped into the presence of his Savior and his Lord. Death was no longer to be feared from him. He didn't care that he was dying. He looked forward to it more and more as he got sicker and older and everything slowed down and cancer was just overwhelming and crushing the life out of him, the physical body life. But he was looking forward to the day when he would step through that death and be face to face with Jesus Christ, his Savior and his Lord. And he would do, hear those great words, welcome home, good and faithful servant. Welcome into the joy of your master. Death has no fear for us anymore. Yes, our bodies die and go into the ground. But when we step through death, we step face to face with Jesus Christ. Christ has conquered He's defeated it all. Our enemy has, not enemy, our Savior has prevailed over our enemies. And we gather this morning as a company of people who are no longer slaves to Satan, no longer slaves to sin, no longer slaves to death. We have a hope. 
And part of that hope comes from the third of the three things, the fact that Christ has ascended on high. Mankind thinks its greatest problem is a lack of wealth and a lack of health, a lack of all the things that they want. Man thinks his problem is that he has wars and disease and plagues and natural disasters and earthquakes and tsunamis and all those other horrible things. That's not their greatest problem. Their greatest problem is slavery to sin, to death. And Satan and Jesus Christ has conquered them all. Knowing Christ, we no longer need wealth. Knowing Jesus Christ, we no longer need health. Yes, health is a good thing. Yes, health is a gift of God. Amen to that. But when we get sick and the end looms closer, it's not a problem for us anymore because Christ has conquered. He has won the victory. We look forward to the day when our heavenly bodies will replace our earthly bodies. Brother West pointed this verse out to me a few months ago, and I just it, st- it staggered my head. I hadn't noticed it before. This is great. But listen to this. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 3. For we know that if the earthly tent, that's this, our, is a house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as having put it on, we will not be found naked. You know what that means? Once we step through death's doorway and this body, this horrible old saggy thing goes into the ground, we will have a new body, a new heavenly body, a body made without hands, perfected, made exactly right by God, unmarked, unstained, and unscarred by sin. And it's all because Christ has conquered and his ascension in victory guarantees those things to us. Listen. He has a sin. The Bible only describes it in a few spots, and I want to read them to you. 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible says this, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Luke 24, verses 50 to 53 says this. He led them, that's Jesus, He led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Acts 1.9, he says this. And after Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. Jesus Christ finished his earthly work. When he shouted on the cross, it's finished. He'd done it all. God the Father now answers his son's high priestly prayer. Remember what he prayed? Father, glorify me with the glory I had before. And the Father, when he'd finished the work, he was came up to heaven. The Father glorified him. He gave him back all that radiant, glorious, heavenly glory that he'd laid aside for a time. Christ's ascension is his necessary entrance into his heavenly glory, never again to be laid aside. Listen, people think about Jesus in terms of his earthly walking around. He looks like any other Jewish man. Five foot eight, dark hair, darkish colored skin, a carpenter, rough-handed tradie. He doesn't look like that anymore. He now looks like a risen, glorious, conquering king. We'll recognize him because we'll see the scars in the base of his wrists and the scars in his side and the scars on his feet. But as far as that rough, tradey-looking Jewish carpenter, he doesn't look like that anymore. He now has his heavenly glory, and he'll never again put it aside. In his glory, Christ sits on the right hand of the Father until his enemies become his footstool. 
Christ's ascension is proof that he is greater and infinitely superior to all the Old Testament heroes, including his great-grandfather, David. From the author of the book of Hebrews, the ascension of Christ is also proof of Christ's superiority to the angels. By his ascension, Christ now rises over all and fills all. By his glorious ascension, Christ receives the name that's above every name. And like I said before, when he walked through the doorways of heaven, can you imagine the shouts that went up? The angels in perfect harmony, melody, gloriously praising God, falling down at his feet and worshiping. The Bible in the book of Revelation describes a beautiful scene. I think I, I might have said it before. I don't know. I don't remember. And the angel is looking. Let's read it. Revelation 5. Take your Bibles and flip over there. It's worth it. There it is. Revelation 5 and verse 1. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open a book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. And I, John, began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and, wickets and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat in the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense which and the prayers of the saints. And verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased from God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Do you see what's happening? The victorious general has ridden through the streets, if you like. They've shaken out the flowers in front of him and the smell, the sweet aroma of his victory fills all of heaven. And he's the only one worthy. Look at the pictures there. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb having been slain and standing there. And he has overcome. That means he's conquered. That's the Savior we come to worship every Sunday morning. This is the one who has conquered and prevailed on our behalf. He has ascended on high. And in his glorious ascension, Christ receives the name above every name. He was God the Son from eternity past. He descended in humility. He took on human flesh and blood, became God in the flesh, truly man and truly God. He conquered through suffering and his flesh and blood. And he now ascends still and forever, truly man and truly God. And for us, it gives us great hope, brothers and sisters in Christ. For the believer, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. He told us, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In Acts 2.33, Peter's preaching. And he gives the answer to that promise. He says, therefore, having been exalted... To the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth the Holy Spirit on us. That's a promise that we have because Jesus has ascended. We have the promise of a heavenly place. Praise God that He has gone to prepare a place for us. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to being free of this mortal 
stuff. <laughs> I want to go home and be with Jesus, don't you? He's gone to prepare a place. In my Father's house, John 14, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's our hope. He's coming back. See, his dissension is one-third the story. His ascension is another-third the story. But guess what? He's also coming back again. He's coming back in power and glory to receive us to himself. He conquered and he prevailed. He's coming back. The third guarantee is that Christ's sacrifice on our behalf has been accepted. And never, ever need to worry about paying for my sin ever again. Because the very fact that he ascended on high, that's the lamb he has overcome. He's prevailed in the old King James. Which means that his sacrifice for me was enough. I never, ever have to worry about paying for my sin beyond this because Jesus has paid it all. His ascension proves that his sacrifice was accepted. And finally, Jesus' ascension is guarantee that he is interceding on our behalf. Go right back to the beginning of the message. I asked you about the things that Jesus has done for you. I made great mention of all the things that we're going through. And Jesus understands them all. We have a conquering Savior and a King who understands our weaknesses, our sicknesses, our pain, our struggle, our heartache, all of it. You will never, ever, 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 ever go to God in prayer. And God will say, I don't know. Never. Christ understands the struggles that you go through. I got struggles. They're pretty small ones, I'll tell you. I look around, I see some other folks struggling with chronic illness, struggling with massive heartache and heartbreak. And my promise to you, my word to you this morning from Scripture is God knows. He understands. He has conquered sin and He has conquered death. He's conquered Satan. He's won every victory you will ever have to fight. And He has ascended and He is seated beside His Father and He never stops praying for you and me. What an amazing Savior we have. Amen. So what do we do out of all this? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. That's it. Trust God. Put your faith firmly in God who conquered. Claim His death for your own. His life for your own. His resurrection is yours. Trust Him and walk with Him. That's what He's calling all of us to do. And you know, you think, well, trust and obey, that's just the beginning part of your entrance into the life of faith, right? Nope, it's the whole thing. <laughs> we trust Him and we obey. In faith we obey and in obedience we trust. They never change and it goes right through this Christian life doesn't matter what you've done. Christ's death is enough to pay the penalty for whatever sin you've committed. doesn't matter how great your heartache, Christ's comfort is greater. doesn't matter how great the struggle of sickness and pain, Christ's comfort is greater.